0: where we find ourselves this morning deals with the subject of patience. Now, he introduced the topic earlier in the epistle, but now he's going to camp on it, but probably not in the way that you think. He's going to deal with an aspect of patience that very often many of us never really think about. But patience is important. It enhances our testimony, and it really allows us to enjoy life.
1: And welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl begins his new sermon titled, Developing Patience, from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. We will see that having patience is important because it enhances our testimony and allows us to really enjoy life. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins in James, chapter 5. Verse seven.
0: I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the Epistle of James chapter 5. If you are new to the Bible, you might want to use the Table of Contents, or you can just find Revelation. Most of us know that's the last book. If you scan back just a few pages to the left, you will come to the Epistle of James. James is what we refer to as a general epistle. When you think of the New Testament, there are four principal sections to the New Testament. First, there's the historical books. The historical books would be the Gospels and the book of Acts. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that run through the life of Christ. And then you have the book of Acts that uncovers the next 30 years of church history, starting with his ascension. After the historical books, you have the Pauline epistles. 1 Corinthians all the way through Philemon. And then after the Pauline epistles, we have what we call the non-Pauline epistles, or sometimes we call it the general epistles, or very often historically, the church referred to this section of the New Testament as the Catholic epistles. Catholic is a combination of two Greek words, kathos. Kathos, it speaks of whole and all loss, so a cathos according to all loss, whole, so literally according to the whole. In other words, the general epistles were not written to a specific church or location, but they applied generally to the church at large. And really, this is the understanding when we speak of the Catholic church, we're speaking about the universal body of Christ the people of God, wherever they may be. And so in the Apostles' Creed, not written, of course, by them, but summarizing their doctrine, it says, I believe in the holy Catholic Church. We're saying, I affirm the universal body of Christ, that it's not just us here at Community Bible Church, but there are born-again believers across the world. Or in the Nicene Creed, written about 325 A.D., we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So, Catholic simply means universal. And so, when we speak of the Catholic epistles, we're speaking of those universal epistles. Obviously, every book of the New Testament, if it's written to the Church of Galatia or Ephesus, it applies to us. But there are some books that were written in a broad way for believers wherever they might be found. So again, think of the Bible, the New Testament. It will help you in organizing your thinking. You have the historical books, you have the Pauline epistles, you have the general epistles, which would be Hebrews, 1st and 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and on either side of those, two J books, James and Jude, and then Revelation, of course, stands all on its own. Now, if you remember the opening verse. He is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. So we speak of the diaspora, spora seed. These people were scattered like seed, largely, of course, due to persecution. So he's writing to Jewish Christians. This is one of the earliest books written in all of the New Testament. Some think this was written right after Matthew and even before Paul wrote Galatians, but it's early on in the New Testament, and we underscored why that was important for us to know in the opening message in this series. Now, this morning, we want to focus on verses 7 through 12, but let me give you the broad context, and I hope by the time we're done with James, you can think your way through the book. See, if you have the big picture of any book of the Bible, then the details begin to take on meaning. So that when you think of James, uh, I know there's something in James about maybe faith without works and the tongue. No, I really want you to be able to kind of think your way through the whole book. And then it becomes a tool in your life, not just as you're edified by the truth that's found in it, but also in helping others, your children and those whom you disciple. So when a question comes up, you can put in your mind the framework of the book. So we've seen that when you read a book over and over and over again, you begin to see the component parts, and this epistle divides into three sections. Chapter 1, of course, deals with the development of your faith. Chapters 2 through 4, the distortion of faith, and then chapter 5 with the display of faith. So we opened up with chapter 1, and we focused on how God develops our faith, and he uh, underscored for us three problems, and many of you have written out in the margin the major highlights of each chapter. So if you remember in chapter 1, he dealt with the problem of pain, then he dealt with the problem of temptation, and then he dealt with the problem of not applying God's Word to your life, being just a hearer. But not someone who takes what he hears and puts it into shoe leather. And so, chapter one speaks to how our faith can develop or progress. When you come to chapters two through four, you turn a page, you turn a corner in the epistle, and he deals with the distortion of faith. And of course, he speaks of the distortion of faith as it relates to our testimony, as it relates to our tongue, and as it relates to things that we are to avoid. So, he spoke about our testimony, our relationship to other people, and the good works that should emulate from our life. Then he spoke about our tongue, that a mature believer has control over his tongue. And hopefully, he is beginning to speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter 4, he dealt with those three things that we should avoid. He deals with the problem of worldliness. God has not called us to be shaped by the world but we are to be transformed through the word of God that we might be distinctively different from the world. And so the whole church growth movement that started largely in the 1990s tried to emulate the things that the world would find attractive in order to draw them into these churches. And so we saw this huge mega church movement grow across the land. And so we have the largest churches in our history with the least amount of influence And our nation. Instead of being becoming shaped and influenced by the light and salt of the body of Christ, we've become like them. It is not our likeness to the world, it's our distinctiveness from the world. So he deals with the problem of worldliness in chapter four. If you remember, then he dealt with the problem of judging. How we're not to unfairly judge my christian brother and then third he dealt with the problem of perspective and he just reminded us that our life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes and then if you remember we came last time to chapter five where he begins to unfold the display of faith if you were here last week we dealt with verses one through six where he underscored our possessions And he wants us to have a godly perspective on the things that God has entrusted us with, even when people are unfair with us and do not pay us an honest day's wage. And then, of course, when we come to verses 13 through 18, before the conclusion in the last two verses, he'll deal with physical healing in prayer. And those two, of course, are wed together. But sandwiched between the two, where we find ourselves this morning, deals with the subject of patience. Now, he introduced the topic earlier in the epistle, but now he's going to camp on it, but probably not in the way that you think. He's going to deal with an aspect of patience that very often many of us never really think about. But patience is important. It enhances our testimony, and it really allows us to enjoy life. James 5, we want to begin reading verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but, let your, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, let me make three observations about this paragraph of Scripture before we try to unpack the details. The first observation is that he is clearly switching gears. In the first six verses, he's been dealing with the rich unbeliever. And he uses him as an example of what we as true believers are not to be like. But the fact that he's turned a corner is obvious by this word, brethren. He uses it four times in this paragraph, in verse 7 and verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 12. I have it underlined each time. In other words, the kind of patience that he is describing concerns the brethren You know, the world will offer a certain kind of self-control maybe through an AA program or certain kind of patience through uh, trying to, you know, modify your thinking using tools like meditation, et cetera, et cetera. But that's all the world can do. We're not talking about a white-knuckle kind of self-control or patience. We're talking about something that can only be true of someone who's been born again Because only the born-again believer has become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it says we are filled with the Spirit that one of the fruits that he develops is patience, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you've never been born again, it doesn't matter how hard you may try the kind of patience that God is under full underscoring here can never be true until you make that decision. The second observation I want to make concerns the word, therefore. and As I have told you on countless occasions, that's a structural marker. And whenever you see the word, therefore, you want to ask, what is it there for? So the context here is important to the flow of thought that the Holy Spirit is inspiring through the, the pen of the Apostle James. He is signaling you that verses 7 through 12 is somehow related to the previous paragraph. And so once more, he has addressed the rich man. If you remember in chapter 2, he first brought him up in 2 and verse 6. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, it is. That's what they did in that day and then of course he brought them up again here in verse 6 of this chapter you have condemned and put to death the righteous man the unbelieving rich in james's day was persecuting the righteous believing in this case jew they were putting them to death through the court system that they manipulated for their own purposes and so beginning here in verse 7 James is giving us some very practical advice on how to live when you are unjustly treated, when you are in some kind of intolerable situation. So he's moving from condemning the unrighteous rich to try to comfort the the believer, the religious saints here. Saints and that's what you are if you know Christ. Sainthood is not something that it's earned. It's something that is credited to your account. And so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint. And so remember, these were Christians who put in a hard day's work. And at the end of the day, when they expected to be paid, their check was being withheld. And, of course, God heard, God saw the cry that they made to the Lord had reached the heirs of the Lord of Sabaoth. There's a third observation I want to underscore here, and it concerns the three illustrations that James gives us if we are to develop patience. There are three key words that you might want to circle or underline in your text. In verse 7, the word farmer. James's first illustration concerns the patient farmer. The second illustration comes in verse 10, and it's the word prophets. We're going to look at the patient endurance of the Old Testament prophets to see what we can learn from them. And then the third illustration in verse 11 concerns this man, most of you know as Job, and he's a prototypical example of true biblical patience. So, James wants to build his case for patient endurance through these three illustrations, and that's really our outline this morning. Principle number one on your note-taking outline, if you're listening online, there's a place where you can uh, print it out if you wish. Like a patient farmer, we are to wait for the return of God. Like a patient farmer, we are to wait for the return of God. So, he's talking about developing patience, especially for those who've been unjustly treated. There's a lot of talk today about ill treatment and a lack of justice, but most of it is it's being unfolded by our culture. has nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, it's antithetical to what the Scripture says. So, if we want to understand true biblical justice, pay attention this morning. Notice how verse 7 begins, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now that word patient, it appears four times in six verses. Twice here in verse 7, once in verse 8, and then again in verse 10. So it's obviously pretty important. It's the Greek word makrothumia, You can hear two English words that come directly from the Greek. Macro, that means large or big. Thumio, we get our word like thermometer or thermos from it. And so putting the two words together, it literally meant someone who is long-tempered and it's one of the attributes of God. And he's describing here a person who takes a long time to get angry. He is not a short-tempered person. He is a person with a long fuse and not a short fuse. And again, that's an attribute of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the same identical word, macrothumia, and the love chapter, my wife taught in woman's life this year, 1 Corinthians 13, and dozens of the women in our church memorized that whole portion of Scripture. And there it is translated patient. Love is patient. Love suffers long, you could say. Though closely related to this word, we saw earlier in the epistle, in the opening verse, is the word endurance. He says, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, you are to let those trials have their perfect result that you are to endure through them. It's the same principle, but it's slightly a different word. In the opening chapter, the word that's translated endurance or patience, depending on your English Bible, deals with trying circumstances. In this particular section, he's dealing with trying people, difficult people. You got any difficult people in your life? Pay attention this morning. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Notice, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. So again, he follows up the previous paragraph of those who had their wages withheld. And for some, their lives were lost either through a lack of food or they were literally murdered by the court system. And we went through that last time. Therefore, be patient. In other words, you can't go around with the attitude, some sourpuss, like, hey, this isn't fair, this is unjust. And you're always, you know, bitter and angry like you're some kind of a victim. No, he says, be patient. Notice, until the coming of the Lord. Now, some of you have been reading the book of James once a week. You've told me since we started. Even I haven't done it every single week. But I'm proud of you that have. That's a wonderful goal that you've been uh, participating in. And if you read it again this week, it probably jumped out at you again that in these three verses, three, uh, it, in three verses, three times the coming of the Lord is underscored. First here in verse 7, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. A second time in verse 8 when he says, the Lord is near. And then notice a third time at the, in the last part of verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door, that is at the threshold. So we're going to see throughout this paragraph that he's giving us the ultimate incentive that when we are mistreated, we need to look to the future when the Lord will come, when he will make every wrong right. And the word for coming is the Greek word parousia. And so many of you have studied theology and you will hear the term parousia, the parousia of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Sometimes it's used of a person like the coming of Timothy. But most often it's used of the Lord Jesus himself, either of the rapture, which is when he comes for his church, or for the second coming, when he will literally come to the earth and our prayers that he asks us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will literally be, be fulfilled. But the word parousia speaks of the coming of the Lord in two phases, because Christ comes first for his church, and then he comes to the earth. Some of you were with us in our study of the Revelation, and I gave you this chart, so let me refresh your memory with it. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We shall meet the Lord in the air. That's the promise of 1 Thessalonians. And so as I stood in the National Cemetery this week with one of our families, one of our dear brothers who lost his wife of 58 years, I reminded that precious family that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up, will meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. In the rapture, Christ comes for his people. At the second coming, he not only comes back with his people, but he brings angels who come for the lost to remove them from the earth. And so that verse, often taken out of context, Hal Lindsay, had, sadly to say, grossly abused it, and he made an inaccurate application. One will be taken, one will be left. And he said that was the rapture. He was the first one to come up with that interpretation. But because he wrote so prolifically, many think that it's a reference to the rapture, but contextually it's a reference to the second coming. At the second coming, some will be taken away in judgment, and those who survive the tribulation, they will be left to enter into the great tribulation. At the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial, before the tribulation. We'll talk about that in a moment, a pre-tribulational rapture. Whereas at the second coming, he comes after the hour of trial. And the rapture, there are no signs. It's imminent. Christ can return at any moment. Whereas in the second coming, there are many signs, many prophecies that must be fulfilled for Jesus to come back to the earth. And the rapture, the resurrection takes place when Christ comes in the air. The dead in Christ will come out of the grave first. Those of us who are alive will be caught up, will meet the Lord in the air. Whereas at the second coming... The resurrection takes place of Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints are not raised when the church is raised. And again, we studied seven different resurrections in our series on the revelation. Now, Old Testament saints are raised at the end of the tribulation. Uh, at the rapture, believers will receive a glorified body. If Christ comes back today and the twinkling of an eye, this mortal will put on immortality, this perishable will put on that which is imperishable. I will receive a glorified body and my salvation will be completed. Whereas at the second coming, believers who are alive at the second coming, who survive the tribulation period, they will enter into the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. And so the return of Jesus comes in two phases. And he is assuring them that they can be patient because when Jesus comes back, he's going to fix it all. Please notice how James illustrates his patience in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. The farmer is patient, He is waiting for the fruit of his labor. He doesn't go out and tear up the plants and say, I wonder if it's growing. No, he has to be patient. And to underscore this patience, James says he has to wait until he gets the early and late rains. This shows how long he had to wait. Because in Israel, there's not typically a drop of rain from May until September. And during this long, dry spell, the ground becomes hard as iron. But then the early rains come in October and November. And then the late rains, typically in the end of February, March, and into April. And the farmer, he is waiting for those rains patiently so that the seed he has planted in the ground might begin to germinate. And then as it grows at the end, he will harvest it. And so the late rains come in the springtime and the early rains in the fall. But he has to wait. It's not instantaneously. He can't speed up the harvest. And there's a lesson in that. There are some things that we can do, like the farmer can do. He can plant the seed, he can weed the garden, he can fertilize the plants. Those are things that he can do. But there are other things that are totally out of his control that he can do absolutely nothing about. In ancient Israel, you didn't have irrigation systems. You had to depend on God to send the rain in order to make the plants sprout. And there are things, by the way, that you and I can do, things that are in our control. You know, I counsel people often about worry, and I remind them, well, it doesn't really do any good to worry. Think about it. If there's something you can do about the problem, then do it. Do what you can do. But if there's nothing you can do about it, and it's out of your hands, then you just have to wait on the Lord. And that's the same kind of thought that he is underscoring here in this section of Scripture, that there are things that we can do, and there are things that God can do, and the two are brought together in this divine human relationship.
1: Please join us tomorrow as we continue our series on Developing Patience. If you enjoyed today's series, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- and requesting program James 013 Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.